But he also sets himself apart in a specific office, an apostle. And so he is a servant and, he says, an apostle of Jesus, the anointed one, the Christ. And he's addressing this to them that have obtained like precious faith. An interesting phrase. To them that have obtained like precious faith. And to obtain there means or carries with it the idea of obtaining by lot. Now you're familiar with the idea of casting the lots. And it was really (laughs) to us, as we think about lots, if we think about casting something like dice, you you think about chance. You think about good numbers popping up, like a karma, you know, roll those sevens or elevens or whatever, you know, you're looking for. But the casting of the lot here, we find other places in Scripture is of the Lord. The lot is of the Lord. This came from him. And it also carries with it the idea of a gift. Something that was not obtained through any merit of the person receiving it. So consequently, what is Peter's saying here is, you know, you obtain this like precious faith through no effort of your own and through no merit of your own. It came to you as it were, a gift. And so they obtained this like precious faith. A faith, Peter says, well, he tells us there, with us. A like precious faith with us. In other words, a faith that is the same as the one we have. And like, the word like, carries with it the idea of an equal faith, equally precious, of equal value, or um, you could say equal honor. With us. Well, who is the us? It's not two or three people identified as writing the letter. It's only one person. So who would Peter be talking about? Well, he wouldn't be saying with us Christians because then he would be including the people he's writing to because they were believers. They had the precious faith. But he was really referring here to those with apostolic authority. In other words, the company of the apostles. You have obtained like precious faith with us apostles. And so consequently, the faith that he's talking about here, and by the way, there is no article there, so it's not articular, but he's talking about the faith that accompanied the teaching of Jesus Christ and the apostles. You say, well, what would that encompass? What would be entailed in that? Well, it would would simply mean the gospel that was proclaimed by Jesus Christ 
which he commissioned the apostles to proclaim and carry on, and which they did. And we've examined that before in great detail, or I should say to some extent in detail at least, um, throughout the book of Acts. And we remember we traced that to show how that when Jesus Christ preached the gospel and he commissioned his apostles to continue to proclaim this message to all the world, to the uttermost parts of the earth, as we examine the book of Acts, that's exactly what they did. And so we found that in the gospel accounts, in the life and ministry of Jesus, he proclaimed the gospel concerning the kingdom. That was what he taught. That was what he expressed to the Jewish nation. This one promised long ago by God that there would come an anointed one who would provide for them deliverance and peace and well, I should have put them in the correct order probably. First righteousness, then peace, and all the other blessings of prosperity that went along with this anointed one. Or as the Hebrew would say, with this Messiah. And so they proclaimed that message. And now Peter, in addressing this group of people that he's writing to, he's telling them, you have obtained a like precious faith that we have. And it's of great value, precious, high honor. And it's on an equal plane with us, we apostles. And, of course, by doing so then, he sets them apart as being a specific class of people. Apart from all others, you have this faith. He has this, this, this faith, he says, with us through, the English says there, but it's actually the word that we've talked about before, E-N. In Greek, in English, it would be I-N, in. And it carries with it this idea of a sphere. <clears throat> so, where did they get this like precious faith? In the sphere of the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, we have to... Look at that a little closer, too, because if you're reading the translation that we have here before us in, in our English Bible, King James, you would think he's talking about two persons there. And this verse, this little phrase right here has caused a great deal of discussion as to whether he was indicating one person our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's literally the way it would be expressed. If you just simply took the grammar of the Greek there, it would say, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Those following the argument that it probably he meant two persons here is because in the next verse, in verse 2, he very clearly makes 
reference to two different ones. And he, he says, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So you got two distinct persons there. So the question is, is which is it? Is it two persons? Or is it just one? And those that argue for two say, well, there's no other place in the New Testament where Jesus is called directly God. But I'm not so sure that's the case. What would they do with John 1.1, which we've been studying on Wednesday night with Brother Bob over here? We addressed that issue right from the very beginning, didn't we? Who is... Who is John chapter 1, verse 1 talking about? Well, let's just take a quick look at it. It's a very familiar verse. So let's just take a quick look. And it's not the only one, by the way. But we're just going to take a look at this one just for a moment. We're in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God... And the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, the word, the logos. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. Now, we could go to Colossians, Ephesians to find expressions that tell us that all things were made through Jesus Christ. And here he tells us that all things were made by him. And if we continue on through this passage, um, in John chapter 1, he's called the light. Later, in in verse 14, it says, The word was made flesh. Who was that? The Lord Jesus Christ. The Word, the Logos, which in the beginning was with God, and it tells us there, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, became flesh. And so taken together, these expressions, I think, clearly point us to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is indeed a divine person. And it's my conclusion here, if it were my choice, rather than following something that's alluded to in the second verse, I would just follow the grammar for exactly what it says. Because I I don't think God makes any mistakes. I don't think that he says anything that he didn't intend to say. We believe that the scriptures were divinely, are divinely inspired. They were given specifically word by word by God. And so they mean exactly what they say. And so I take this passage here to be talking about this faith. Having been received by this group that Peter is writing to, he says, is in the righteousness of God our Savior, Jesus Christ. (coughs) What is that righteousness? That would be important to know then, wouldn't it? If it was received not as an objective righteousness, but in the sphere of Jesus Christ, 
then what, what would he possibly mean? Let's turn back for a moment to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Actually, if you'll put your finger there and then turn to chapter 1, we'll take a look at a verse there. Romans chapter 1. In verse 16, Paul says there, as he writes to the church at Rome, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein, that is in the gospel, in this good news, he says, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. The righteous, the just, the righteous one shall live by faith. And, of course, that's a quote from the Old Testament. And so this is not something foreign to the Jewish mind. But it was something distinct and set apart from the law. And so Paul goes on to address that now in chapter 3. And so let's turn over to chapter 3, this righteousness that he's speaking of. And you'll see in verse 20, verses 19 and 20, he says, We know, in verse 19, that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law... There shall no flesh be justified or made righteous, declared righteous in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the law's purpose was not to make one righteous. The law's purpose was for the knowledge of sin. But notice then what he says beginning in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God without the law or apart from the law is manifested or being being made known, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now that's an interesting phrase. This righteousness of God that he is speaking of has already been witnessed by the law itself. The very fact that the law could not produce righteousness tells us that there is something else concerning or something more concerning the righteousness of God because that was not the law's purpose. And then the second thing, being witnessed by the prophets. Something proclaimed to the nation of Israel over a span of several hundred years as the prophets wrote and made clear their declaration concerning the need and the necessity for righteous living apart from merely keeping the dictates of the law. And we've talked about that in times past. In other words, it's one thing 
altogether, and this is brought out in several places. I've mentioned it before uh, in Old Testament scriptures. It's taught very clearly that it's one thing altogether to be a keeper of the law, to make the offerings and the sacrifices as prescribed by the law. But it was another thing altogether to have a heart that was right before the Lord. And you might remember Jeremiah as he was writing to the nation, urging them to repent and to come back to the Lord. And he told them, what, he told them, he told them what concerning their hearts. He didn't tell them, hey, you're okay because you followed the law and you've been circumcised. But rather, he said, circumcise your heart. There was an issue with all Israel. Because though they may, in certain respects, kept the letter of the law, yet their hearts were not right before him. Of course, that's a danger for us today. The danger for us today, though, is we want to re-implement the law. Now, I don't mean necessarily the law as it's recorded in the Old Testament, although we may do portions of that as well. But sometimes we want to just do certain things. We apply a certain thing to ourselves Oops. to make us feel better, to make us more assured that I'm okay before God, that everything's right because I do this, I do this, and I do this. And you've done, gone out and developed your own little list. You've created your own little law to abide by. So each day, or each week, or whatever you do, you make up your own little process. And it's a danger. It's a, it's a weakness of the flesh, see, that we're all prone to, and we can all give in to. And so Peter's declaration to this group that he's writing to is this righteousness comes only through Jesus Christ, not through the law. And Paul's telling us here in Romans chapter 3 the same thing. So he goes on to say then this righteousness witnessed by the law and the prophets in verse 21. He says in verse 22, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of or faith in Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. Of course, you know, faith and believe have the same root word. So when he says, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that have faith. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation or a mercy seat through faith in his blood. You see, I think it's important and helpful for us to understand the propitiation there. It's the mercy seat. And it takes you back to the Old Testament where in the tabernacle, in the temple, 
When the priest went into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat. You know, that's the thought going through the mind of a Jewish believer in particular. And Paul, in instructing here even, I think, Gentiles concerning that, was that that was the place where redemption was made. And you remember he went in once a year. One time a year. Not in March or April at Passover time, but rather later, several months later. And he went in once a year on the Day of Atonement. There to atone for the sins of the people who already belong to God. So, Paul's declaration then is that this righteousness which these believers have and Peter is saying that the ones to whom he is writing have came not from the keeping of the law but rather through the faith in the blood of Jesus Christ not the blood that was sprinkled on the mercy seat of bulls and of goats as the writer of Hebrews tells us, which could never take away sins. As a matter of fact, Paul tells us here that in verse um, verse 25, the rest of that verse there, he says, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare at this time his righteousness that he might be just or righteous and the justifier of him which believes in Jesus. And so God is simply setting forth, or Paul simply setting forth the basis of God's justness, God's righteousness in the righteousness that we receive through faith in the blood of God's own son, Jesus Christ. And so all of that, was considered in this little opening verse of 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. That this righteousness of God came through God our Savior, Jesus Christ. His sacrifice, the shedding of his own blood on the cross of Calvary, now in verse 2, He explains to them, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you. Wow. I mean, when this group, could you imagine somebody standing up in a congregation in a small assembly in somebody's home somewhere, and somebody stood up to read this letter, and they were hearing these words, assuring them, that the faith they held in the Lord Jesus Christ was the same faith that the apostles held. Now, of course, what you have to remember and what you have to think about is if you're familiar with the book of Second Peter, we skip ahead a little bit. We find one of the main reasons Paul wrote this book or Peter wrote this book was false teachers. And they were rampant. In this day, 
And so Peter here is reassuring these readers of his, those whom he addressed this letter to, that they, the faith that they held to in the Lord Jesus Christ is the same faith we apostles hold to. We hold to the same community of doctrine, the same words, the same teaching, the same gospel, nothing different. And, of course, that would have given assurance to them that these false teachers would not lead them astray, that what they had initially placed their faith in was the correct faith, and it was right. Now, he tells them, grace and peace be multiplied unto you, how? In, through, the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. The epi-knowledge, the epinosis, a word you're well familiar with as well. A word that means the full knowledge. You don't, you don't really get the expression in the English translation, but it means a full, complete knowledge. Some call it an above knowledge. Some call it a deeper knowledge. So you, you know, it's, it's a word that expands this whole idea of knowledge. Some say it's higher. Some say it's deeper. Some say it's fuller. Some call it a spiritual knowledge. And, of course, in this context, that's exactly what it would mean. A full, deep spiritual knowledge concerning God and his son, Jesus, the anointed one, the Christ. This kind of knowledge is a, is a personal knowledge. It's an intimate knowledge. It means far more than having, say, an objective knowledge concerning some, some fact. You know, it's, it's a pretty interesting thing to say, well, it's, how many miles is it to the moon? Anybody know? 23, it's 93 million to the sun, so 23 million to the moon, I couldn't remember. I was getting ready to give an illustration about the sun, but I said, well, we don't want to go there. Uh, it wouldn't be practical. But we, we've had men on the moon. Well, we can design a rocket, and we can send men to the moon, and it's been done. You and I look upon that as objective knowledge. But the men who've been there had that personal experience, know it from a whole other realm than you and I know it. He can, one of them, or he or she could say, been there, done that, got the T-shirt. We've been to the moon. It's a personal, intimate knowledge with them. For us, we got it out of a textbook. We studied it through mathematics or physics or aeronautics or you know, all, and all the other disciplines that would go into arriving at such a conclusion that it, this could actually happen. We could actually send somebody to the moon. And you objectively believe it. That's one kind of knowledge. It's another thing to have the kind of knowledge that he's talking about here, this epi-knowledge, this epinosis knowledge. It's something you experience on a personal level. And it comes from having initially, first, above all, place your faith 
in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he came to accomplish on the cross of Calvary. Now, (coughs) Vine's dictionary had an interesting sentence that I thought was apropos for this. He said this word, epinosis, this full knowledge we're talking about here, implies participation in the truth. Well, that's going to the moon, see? It's participation in the truth, the facts of the case. A knowledge which perfectly unites the subject with the object. Now, of course, faith has to have an object. And so what he's telling us here, that that which we have faith in, we're the subject, we look to an object, we place our faith in that object, and this epinosis here, this personal, intimate experience that we have with that object that we put our faith in, is epinosis. It brings us together in intimacy. We have the full-orbed experience of this knowledge. And so it's, you know, behooves us then to, when you think that through, it's one thing to have a knowledge about the gospel of the kingdom, but it's far more important that we continue on with that and enter into that personal intimate relationship with it and with the savior who proclaimed it. In verse 3, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge, we find the word again, the full knowledge, the epinosis knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Now that's important. Because it tells us there that this knowledge is not just there for the taking, but it has a purpose behind it. Peter calls it a calling. He hath called us to glory and to virtue. And this kind of goes along with what I was trying to express a little while ago. That it's one thing to have the knowledge, it's another thing to enter into the full experience. See, you could have the gnosis, in other words. You could have the knowledge, but do we have the epi-knowledge? Have we entered into that personal, intimate relationship? And then he tells us here, this calling is to virtue, or excuse me, glory and virtue, moral excellence. Best way I know to describe that word. And so, again, this calling to something, the end result of having this knowledge that we're talking about results in something. It results in glory. But along the path to glory, with that goes virtue, moral excellence. Right living, in other words, is important. Having a high standard, a high personal standard, is important. 
And so we need to hold those things that the Bible teaches us regarding moral values in high esteem. And we ought to claim them and embrace them as our own. Because on the path to glory, he enlists here these moral virtues. And by the way, we're going to have a list of the kinds of things he's talking about here in just a a few more verses. Turn back with me to 1 Peter, just a couple pages. And look at chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. There Peter tells, tells us, he says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, he tells us over here in verse 3 of, of Second Peter, he hath called us to glory and virtue. Back here in chapter 2 of First Peter, he says he's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And if we were to turn back, and we probably should do that, to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13, a verse that we've looked at before. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13. We're talking about this calling now, what he has called us to. Well, he's called us to something, and in that calling, he's called us out of darkness and into light. And in verse 13, Paul says... Concerning Christ, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. And I've mentioned this before on more than one occasion. I like this word, translated. And it carries with it the idea of literally now of moving from one location to another location. He has removed us from the power, the sphere, the realm of darkness, and he has placed us within the sphere. And by the way, the word into there is that little familiar word, E-N, I-N, in English, the sphere of light. That's important for us to recognize. He has moved us into the kingdom from darkness into the kingdom of his dear son, which Peter later describes in 1 Peter as out of darkness into light. And so concerning this kingdom, concerning this translation, we have been removed once we have received the Lord Jesus Christ. We believed in him. We've been changed, removed to another sphere, another realm. Now, the unfortunate thing is, in the exercise of our own will, we can walk outside that sphere. And we can again walk in darkness. 
And so it's important for us then to follow the New Testament admonitions, and even as Peter gives them later in his epistle here in 2 Peter, about remaining in fellowship with the Lord. 1 John, remaining in fellowship with the Lord, walking in the light as he is in the light. Because we can walk in darkness. And then he says when we do that, we lie. We don't believe the truth. We're not expressing what we said we believed when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we'll finish up with verse 4. Whereby, he says, are given unto us great and precious promises that by these promises, that is, you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now, understanding the full expression of what some of these words mean, you could just stop right there and you would have the message basically of the New Testament right here. You would have the message of Peter's letter right here. Because to grab a hold of these promises, he says, concerning these, they're great and they're precious of high honor, great value. And through these promises, become partakers of the divine nature. Why, how can that happen? Because we have escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Because you see, when you are translated from darkness and you are placed in the kingdom of his dear son and you are now walking in light, that is the sphere in which you function spiritually. And you can obey the spirit and you can walk in the spirit. You cannot follow the lusts of the flesh and walk over here in the sphere of light. You, you can't, you know, the two are incompatible. They don't go together. And so he's telling us we've escaped that by, by virtue of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And as a result, living in that realm living in that sphere, doing what the believers of Hebrews 11 did. They lived their lives full to the end in faith. We looked at it a week or so ago, Hebrews eleven thirteen. These all died in faith. These all having obtained a good report all the way to the end of their lives. They lived, walked, Breathe in this realm, in this sphere. And that's where the sphere of righteousness is. That's what it means to have the righteousness of Christ. This practical righteousness. This righteousness that comes only by faith. And you obtain that faith. Not because of anything that we've done. But because it was a gift to us. And what a, you know, I mean, you think, ha, I think I've, you, you can't, how can you 
think of anything more precious, of any greater value than God the Father from heaven determining that of my creatures, this is what I want to give them. And then to spurn it, to treat it lightly, to consider it of no great value. I mean, it's a great thing to have, and boy, when I die, I'm looking forward to being with Jesus. But then we just go off, see, and and then live our own way, do our own thing. And we just got Jesus tacked on on Sunday, and that's all we have to worry about the rest of the week. You see, it's, it's all or none. If you're going to embrace him, if you're going to embrace his gospel concerning his coming kingdom, and I can't tell you how many times we, amongst ourselves here, not just me, but we've expressed how we feel the time is getting so near. And it's not just us. You read the newspapers. You watch the news on TV and it's just like, seems like the whole world feels there's something coming up. There's something on the horizon. They don't know what it is, but there's something in this world about to happen. Because we just, you know, you hear people say we just can't keep going on the way we're going. And of course we know that. We also know it's going to get worse before it gets better. But oh boy, (laughs) When it does get better, for those who have held this faith right to the end, it is indeed going to be better. And Jesus will then pronounce, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And that's going to be some of those precious words we'll ever want to hear, won't it? To know that I'm here, I've arrived, and I get to enjoy these promises that he talked about here in verse 4. All that he's promised that would happen when Messiah comes, then it's going to be personal experience, and we'll get to know it. So let's enjoy Let's value our Lord Jesus Christ and what God has given us through him and the gift that we have so freely received. As uh, Paul told the church at Rome, but let's also do something like this Saturday. Let's enjoy one another. Let's enjoy the fellowship of the saints. We have an opportunity to do that, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make, well, somebody going to call me? I don't want to, I'm not going to miss. <laughs> I will be there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you now for this opportunity to spend time in your word. We thank you once again for the, the strong, reassuring promises of your word that those who hold to the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ have much to look forward to. 
And I pray, Father, that we would stand strong in the day of adversity, that we would be true and not cave in to the cares of this world and not covet the things that the world has to offer, but we would simply seek those things of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.